Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. The stage had been set and the path prepared. A man named John had been telling everyone that the Savior of the world would soon reveal himself. And then Jesus did just that. No longer the baby in a manger we talk about every year, but a man with sun-worn skin and facial hair, with cultivated skills and calluses on his hands and a purpose clearly in front of him. He was nothing amazing to look at per se, but magnetic nonetheless. And as he stepped onto the scene, the best way to start a movement is to find other people to move with you. And so he started collecting people to follow him. He started inviting people to come and get to know him, to learn from him. He invited these followers to be his disciples, his students, to be loved by him and formed by him and known by him. And as he collected them, he set out on his mission and his collection of followers grew. He was healing, he was teaching, he was setting an example for them. People who had been excluded were now included. People who had been given up on were now healed. People that thought so little of themselves were seen and loved by their savior. And it's in that moment in the midst of all of that, that we come to our story in the Gospel of Luke today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying. As he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. With all that Jesus's disciples, his followers had seen, with with all they'd been asked to do, when they saw him pray, something about what they saw or heard or experienced highlighted for them the gap between him and themselves. Something about his prayer life made them go, something here is different and we want to know. And, and we could speculate on what they wanted. Maybe they wanted the power to do the things Jesus was doing. Maybe they wanted to do the miracles and get the acclaim for it. Maybe they just wanted their prayers to be more effective so they could get what they wanted, or maybe they just wanted to be more impressive in some way. Whatever the reasons, Lord, teach us 
to pray. There are a lot of different practices or disciplines that we talk about when we talk about following Jesus every day. A lot of practices or disciplines, you may have heard the term spiritual disciplines, that we want to create uh, as habits that we're engaging in on a regular basis because this is about following Jesus every day. And there's lots of different ways to do that, engage in that, deepen our relationship with him. Things like fasting or Bible reading, taking a Sabbath, serving others, worship, prayer, etc. Out of all of those, perhaps the one that we most assume is prayer. Like we think it's the most natural. Uh, we say things like, it's just talking to God. It's just a conversation. It's easy. And that's not a lie. It is just a conversation. But there's nothing particularly natural about talking to someone we can't see. If you've ever watched a one or two-year-old try to talk on the telephone, right? They're holding it like here because they don't know what to do with it. The difference between a one-year-old talking to grandma and grandpa on the phone and talking to grandma and grandpa on a video chat is incredible. They're very confused why grandma or grandpa is in that little box in front of them that their parents handed them, but there's a face there that they recognize and they know who that voice belongs to. That feels natural to look at a face and talk to it. Nothing particularly natural about talking to someone we can't see. If you grew up in church, Perhaps you grew up hearing lots of prayers that maybe were, were very, uh, say, lengthy uh, and flowery from somebody up on a platform like this. And you may have decided that your prayers, if you were really going to pray like you're supposed to, your prayers needed to sound like that man or woman who had had the microphone. And there's nothing natural about trying to sound like somebody else. And because we assume it, because we assume that it's going to just happen, in churches, we tend not to teach it. I grew up in church and was not taught a whole lot about prayer itself. And we'll get to that a little bit more in a bit. This may sound strange, I suppose, a small confession on my part I am often more comfortable being vulnerable up here in front of a room full of people than I am in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody two feet away from me. I think that's weird and backwards, but it does happen to me. I'm often more comfortable talking to God up here in front of you, representing all of us in prayer, than I am in a conversation with God on my own in a dark room. Being vulnerable in a direct conversation with the God of the universe does not feel natural to me. And because I don't have the prayer life that I would like to or feel like I should, I hesitate to talk about it. I certainly don't think I have things to teach many of you who would be miles ahead of me in this practice. And so I say all of that just to say that I take great comfort and solace in this passage we just read from Luke and in the disciples' request. Lord, teach us 
to pray. The disciples needed to be taught how to pray. I need to be taught how to pray. Maybe you do too. So over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about prayer. Why, what, and how. We're going to look at Jesus' answer to this request. We're going to sit with the disciples and learn alongside them. Lord, teach us to pray. One of those disciples, Matthew, recalls the story this way in his gospel, his account of Jesus's life. This is Matthew chapter six, starting in verse nine. Jesus says, pray like this. Our father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. This is what has been known through church history as the Lord's Prayer, the prayer the Lord taught us. And if you grew up in church and perhaps grew up in more traditional environments, in church, uh, you may have memorized this, either in your church or in your home, uh, and probably in uh, older language than what I just read. I know uh, I did, and some of you are smiling and nodding. So, so some thys and thous, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our Trespasses. I learned trespasses, and I learned later that's because I grew up Methodist. Trespasses. So, uh, I went to a Presbyterian church. They said debts. Went to another church. They said sins. New Living says sins. Anyway, this is how I learned what trespasses meant. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, you may have noticed that that last little part, thine be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, is not in what we just read, unless you happen to be peeking at a King James Version or New American Standard Version Bible. Now, why is it in some and not in others? It is not in the newest translations of Scripture because it is not in most of the oldest Greek and Latin documents that we have. It's not in there. So we could panic and freak out about this, or there could be a fairly logical explanation. I'm not one for twisting words to come up with logical explanations. I just think this one makes a ton of sense. Why is it in some of the oldest documents and not in others? We believe that it's because if you look at other uh, letters in the New Testament, uh, often somebody like Paul writing a, another letter to another church, as he's praying for them, will end it with what we would call a doxology, uh, a praise, so glory to God forever and ever, amen, would be how he would end his prayer. Now, we have every reason to believe that the Lord's Prayer was being prayed and recited together in churches, and that the early church was saying this together. And because this is how they had been taught to pray, not only through the words of Jesus, but then through the letters and examples of Paul and the other apostles, they would put some sort of doxology on the end of it. And if that began to codify and become uh, expected, 
or normal throughout the early churches, it would make sense that as scribes are writing down the passages of scripture that they're copying, because there was no printing press to do this, they had to do it all by hand, that they would include the doxology, the praise at the end of it, that they said in church with everybody else. So some have it and some don't. Now, you may have also noticed that Luke and Matthew say slightly different things. Uh, And if this was uh, an incantation uh, or a script that we needed to say exactly correctly, that we had to say all the right words in the right order at the right time while in the right physical position to get it all right and make it do what we want it to be, that would be a problem. But it is not an incantation. And I want to spend the next couple of weeks talking about the Lord's Prayer, the prayer Jesus taught us, not as uh, magic words or a script we have to say just right, but as a pattern for prayer, an instruction on prayer from Jesus himself. Specifically, I want to talk about what it teaches us about why we pray and what we say. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about why we pray. Like, When you pray, is it just because you feel like you're supposed to? Like you were told, this is what you do, so you do that thing. Now, I want to pause there just to say that is an entirely legitimate reason to pray. We pray because we are supposed to. We pray because we're supposed to. Now, I don't know how you react to the phrase supposed to. I know there is a thing in me that rises up and goes, whatever you tell me supposed to, I'm going to do this thing. I don't like supposed to. However, it is entirely legitimate to say, well, Jesus did it and he told us to. And the Old and New Testament are riddled with examples of people talking to God. And in a very real sense, if we're following Jesus every day, we're following his example. And We don't need more reason than Jesus said so. If we're following, we don't need more reason than Jesus said, do this thing. Okay, that's enough for me. I will do the thing. It doesn't make sense, but sure. I do want to dig a little bit deeper this morning and dig into why Jesus would tell us to pray. What is it supposed to accomplish or achieve or or make different. Many of us have experienced prayer to be unnatural or hard. Many of us have cried out in our desperate moments, God, would you just do this one thing for me? We've bargained. God, if you do this thing, then I'll I'll do this forever. And we've discovered in the end that God did not respond to our request the way we wanted him to. That our loved one was not healed. That the addiction was not taken away. The life is still hard. So if the reason for prayer is not to make life go better or to make sure that God takes care of our loved ones, why? Do we pray? Why bother? Why does it matter? 
I believe the most significant reason is found in the very opening words. Our Father. Ultimately, we pray because of relationship. We pray because of relationship. Because talking and listening is how relationship works. Because we are loved by God like a perfect father loves his child. Because it is in relationship that I believe our faith becomes more personal. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book called Prayer, simple title for exactly what he talks about. He talks about prayer. Uh, And if you're looking for six ways to make prayer do whatever you want it to do, this is not that book. There are plenty of those out there. This is not one of them. I would recommend you go this way. Uh, It is a digging into the uh, theology of prayer, to talking about some of this why and what and how. And in this book, again, Tim Keller, called Prayer, he recalls a sermon by 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards about honey. This will connect in a second, I promise. Edwards says there are two ways to know that honey is sweet. So you can know it in your mind or you can know it on your tongue. You know it because people told you or because you've experienced it. Keller writes, you may say, I really believe in God. I really believe that Jesus died on the cross. I have no doubts about that. Edwards can respond that you may not have had any doubts at all about honey being sweet either. You could have talked to 100 people who told you it was. You could have read scientific reports that proved it was sweet and pleasant to the human palate. You could have been quite sure about it without having tasted it yourself. Prayer is God's invitation to us, as the psalmist says, to taste and see that the Lord is good. To not just know, but to experience the love and the goodness of God. God has declared us his children, not just his creation. He's adopted us as people to be loved, not just a creation to be admired. Thomas Goodwin, a 17th century Puritan, recalled walking down the road one day and seeing a father and son also walking down the road together, father and his little boy. And at some point on their walk, the father scoops up the little boy into his arms and he squeezes him and he kisses him on the forehead and he tells him that he loves him. And I imagine this little boy beaming or giggling. And after a minute, the father puts him back down. Now, was that little boy any more of a son to his father when he was up in his arms being held and told that he was loved than he was down on the ground? Was any more of a son when he was in his father's arms than he was when he was at home and his father was at work? No, no, objectively and legally, he was not. But experientially, there was all the difference in the world. 
In his father's arms, Keller says, the boy was experiencing his sonship. We are invited to experience being children of God and engaging in that relationship. And last week we talked about engaging in a relationship with God in which we trust him enough to bring our cares and anxieties to him, that we trust him to absorb our anxieties in his peace. And we build that trusting relationship, that experience of being his loved children through prayer. We pray to experience his goodness, experience that absorption of our worries, experience experience being loved by him. And as we talked about last week, we come to that conversation, to that relationship humbly, knowing that we have need, knowing that we're worried or afraid or hurting and believing that God is mightier and more capable than we are. We come to that relationship recognizing that we have some errant desires, that we have lusts and jealousies that do us no good, that we have desires for revenge or conquest or comfort that just don't match the character of Jesus. And we come to prayer Yes, for relationship primarily, but as part of that relationship, we come for the reordering of our priorities and desires. We come to be reordered. Part of letting Jesus teach us to pray is letting Jesus teach us what to desire. John Mark Comer says that part of the human condition, part of living under the curse of sin, is that we have what he calls, quote, disordered desires. Keller borrows from St. Augustine and calls them disordered loves. The Apostle Paul, who, as I mentioned, would write letters to churches and, and be a church planter in Jesus' name, was a huge part of getting this movement started, whose letters make up most of the New Testament. If anybody is holy, it's Paul, and here's how he described his heart's condition and ours. In a letter to the Roman church, he said, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. His desires, his priorities, his actions are disordered. If we come to taste and see God's goodness, there will then be a sort of souring on our own goodness as we see it in light of God's goodness, that we pale in comparison. And so we come to God and we confess Father, I really want revenge, but you say no. I'm really tired of my spouse, and that woman or man at work seems so much more interesting and attractive. I want to respond to my boss or that lady online or to my father-in-law and trash them like they trashed me. But, I want to taste and see your goodness, and none of those things match. 
I want to be a light for you. Please take the darkness away from me. I know what is right, but I don't want to do it. Father, lead me away from temptation and protect me from evil. So often, I think we withhold ourselves from prayer because of something we have done. That we have messed up in some way and we feel some guilt or some shame about what we have done. And we feel like we, we got to get this all cleaned up before we go to God in prayer. Before I'm going to go before a holy God, I got to kind of get myself put together here. I was talking to somebody on Halloween who said that for Halloween, they were pretending to be somebody who had all their stuff together. Stuff wasn't the word they used, but I'll use it here. They were pretending that they had all their stuff together. We feel like we have to be that person to go to God in prayer. And so we go, well, I just, I just won't. I know I felt that in my life. I think for me, maybe more often, I withhold myself from prayer because I don't want to have my desires reordered. Because I want to feel justified in anger and bitterness, not reordered to peace. I want to want comfortable and easy, not have my priorities rearranged. Maybe you've experienced that too. I mentioned this before in a sermon, I think, but John Mark Comer also talks about the difference between our deepest desires and our strongest desires. For example, a wife may desire the guy at work who seems so much nicer than and more put together than her husband, and that desire in that day or that season may be really, really strong. But if she's honest with herself, her deepest desire is for her marriage to be strong and flourishing and her husband to desire her, for her kids to grow up in a stable and loving environment, to honor her savior with her life. A man may desire to feel better about his life by buying that new toy or may desire to avoid his concerns and stresses by spending money he doesn't have or gambling it away. And that desire on that day or in that season may be incredibly, overpoweringly strong. But if he's honest with himself, his deepest desire is to build a solid future, to be respected by his kids or his coworkers or his parents, to save up for a house, to, to provide for and care for his loved ones. And so we come to God in prayer and we ask him to give us strength to overcome our strongest desires and to reorder our priorities and desires so that we live out our deepest and his deepest desires for us. Which brings us to our third RE reason. We pray to request things of God. We pray to request things of God. As I mentioned, I was not taught a lot about prayer growing up. Uh, I was taught by example, by my parents. 
Uh, mostly that example was that we prayed before meals and before bedtime. Uh, often uh, recited prayers that we did together, which is great. Uh, and, and so I learned that there are certain times to pray and certain people to pray with. Uh, the, the bedtime prayer that we recited a lot when I was little, real creepy. Uh, did any, right? Some of you are nodding already because you did this with your kids and you feel bad about it, don't you? Some of you know. Okay. So, right, like, uh, now I lay me down to sleep, right? And, and, and if I die before I wake, like, I wasn't going to have nightmares, but now five-year-old little me, <laughs> nightmare central. But if you've ever had a five-year-old, you know that whatever nightmares you give your children, you pay for later. So there you go. I wasn't taught a lot about prayer really until I was in youth group as a high schooler. And then the, the things that I was taught really centered on this idea of what we request of God. Specifically, we were taught that we don't just bring our requests to God. That God is not a vending machine, that he's not some genie in a lamp that we bring all of our wishes to and, and he'll make them happen. I remember being taught a few different times by different people that we don't just take our grocery list of prayer requests to God, which like, that's a strange thing to teach a 16-year-old. Like, what did I know about a grocery list? I don't know, but I got that. We don't take our list of requests to God. But because that's really all I was taught, what I then took away from that is, okay, well, now I know how not to pray. I don't take my requests to God. Now, I don't think anybody taught me that. I think I just stretched too far and inferred it because we do bring our requests to God. And we'll talk more about requests next week when we talk about what we pray. But we bring our needs. We bring our desire to be reordered. We bring our wants and our dreams to God. So this week, I just want to talk briefly about two reasons why we do bring our requests. And the first is that we have needs. We have needs. And to recognize in our own asking what God already knows, that we have needs and dreams and desires that we can't achieve on our own is a very healthy self-realization. To recognize that we are dependent on God. And it's good to remember this dependence and declare this dependence on God to God, to recognize it in ourselves. And it is part of being reordered, part of building this relationship of recognizing, hey, I am dependent on you. The second reason why we request is requesting helps us put the credit for God's blessings where it is supposed to go. Helps us put the credit for God's blessings where it's supposed to go. Keller says, God often waits to give a blessing until you have prayed for it. In and of itself, if that's the only sentence I read, for me, that's infuriating. Like, why make me ask? If you know, just make it happen. He says, God often waits to give a blessing until you have prayed for it. Why? Good things that we do not ask for will usually be interpreted by our hearts as the fruit of our own wisdom and diligence. I'll read that again. Good things that we don't ask for will usually be interpreted by our hearts as the fruit of our own wisdom and diligence. Gifts from God that are not acknowledged as such are deadly to the soul 
because they thicken the illusion of self-sufficiency that leads to overconfidence and sets us up for failure, end quote. As a dad, I won't give my kids everything that they ask for. That would be brutal on them and my bank account. But, but I do want to bless them and take care of them and set them up for success. In our relationship with our heavenly father, who does want to bless you and take care of you and set you up for success in his deepest desires for you, that relationship is built in prayer and letting our heavenly father help us with our priorities and desires in recognizing that our desires, our dependence, our blessings, we recognize our part and God's part in this relationship. That relationship is built in this recognition, built in giving credit for the blessings where the credit really belongs, including the blessing of being invited into that relationship. Being invited by the all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe into relationship. Being invited into prayer. You are invited to be loved and formed and known by the God of the universe. In the same way that Jesus invited those first disciples, he said, come and follow me. Come and learn from me. Come and be loved and formed and known by me. You and I are invited to be loved and formed and known by the God of the universe. You and I are invited to taste and see that God is good. We are invited to pray. So as Matt and the team come up to lead us in the last song, which is in and of itself prayer, let's pray. Father God, thank you for inviting us into a relationship with you. You who has no need has chosen to love us to invite us and all of our disorderedness into your holiness. Father, I'm grateful for your presence with us, that nothing about how disordered we are changes your love for us, your willingness to be with us, your desire for us to be in relationship with you, your desire to see us live flourishing lives. Father, would you reorder us? Would you form our hearts, our desires, our priorities, so that we are more in line with you, so that we become more of who you have called us to be? so that our hearts, our families, 
our homes, our neighborhoods, our church better reflects who you are, better reflects your love. God, we, we know that we have need, that we need to be formed, that we need your love, that we need to be known by you, even if that's scary and vulnerable. Father, thank you that we can trust you to love us, form us, and know us. And so we come to taste and to see, to know your goodness in a new and different way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.